Revelation chapter 14, which we are beginning uh, to pick up this series that we left off in the fall. And I warned you that the Lord may come before we're done uh, through Revelation. And I've tried to make that real by taking a little bit of time off. But we're going to get into chapter 14 again, starting in verse 6, and really try to, by God's grace, work toward the end. And this morning, we're going to go from verse 6 of Revelation 14 through verse 13. This is the last event in Revelation that God sets in motion before the final judgment on earth and Christ's return to establish his kingdom. This is the final event. And this last event, you'll see, is a gracious warning to the people who dwell on the earth who are about to experience the full wrath of God. Even in Revelation so far, they have not experienced the full wrath of God. And the way he describes it, even by the end of this chapter, is staggering. They're about to experience that. And even as they're about to experience, this is a gracious warning, a merciful call to turn from their sin unto him. This is literally God's final call in human history for salvation before the Lord comes to judge the earth. Let's start reading in verse 6. Paul, uh, John writes, Then I saw another angel flying directly overhead with an eternal gospel to proclaim to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation and tribe and language and people. And he said with a loud voice, Fear God and give him glory because the hour of his judgment has come. And worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. Another angel, a second, followed, saying, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She who made all nations drink the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. And another angel, a third, followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast... And its image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand. He also will drink the wine of God's wrath poured full strength into the cup of his anger. And he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever and they have no rest day or night. These worshipers of the beast and its image and whoever receives the mark of its name. Here is a call for the endurance of the saints, those who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. And I heard a voice from heaven saying, Write this. Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors, for their deeds follow them. The book of Revelation, as we have seen, is about the vindication, the vindication of God and his people. To be vindicated means to show to everyone that you were in the right all along, no matter what other people thought. Even if people had judged you to be guilty of some error or some crime or that you were acting in ignorance or being foolish, 
and your beliefs. Now they know, once you're vindicated, that it was actually they who were wrong about you and maybe a lot of, a lot of other things. And you had actually been in the right. We think of Noah as a perfect example of this kind of vindication. Noah, who spent years and years building an ark and preaching to his culture that God's judgment was coming, and and he was laughed at, the New Testament tells us. And then the rain started falling and falling and falling, and water started rising, and everyone knew they should have listened to Noah safe with his family in the ark. That's vindication. Both the vindication of God and his righteous rule over the earth and the vindication of his people who cling to him and trust him and obey him no matter what, even though everybody else is standing against them, even though they're telling them this is foolish, they cling to the Lord. The Lord is promising one day we are going to be vindicated. Jesus offers this marvelous prophecy of revelation to his suffering people. We read about them in the first couple of chapters of Revelation. He offers this to his suffering people who are being faithful to him even unto death, who may be tempted to question him. Isn't the Lord going to return from us now? Uh, Turn for us? Isn't he going to show everyone who's really in charge of the world? Isn't he going to judge his enemies and our enemies and establish his kingdom? He said he was. Where is he? And the Lord says, yes, I am coming. He says this at the end of the first Christian century to people that that may have been starting to wonder, yes, I am coming, and this is how it's going down. And you are to be faithful and follow me and serve me and never forget you are on the winning side. Satan has already been conquered. I am waiting for mercy to call more people to repentance. In our study of Revelation, we've seen God preparing for this final judgment of the world during what we know as a seven-year tribulation period on the earth. In Revelation chapter 6, there's a series of judgments that are introduced which characterize the terrible conditions on the earth during this time. There's war and famine and disease and death and destruction. We know these as the seal judgments. In addition to that, there is another specific series of judgments that God will send upon the earth to show the world that he is the creator and the sovereign ruler over all things. And that just as God made the world, he can unmake the world anytime he wants. In these judgments that are announced by seven angels, each blowing a trumpet to announce the judgment, we see the creation in reverse. John says that when the first angel blows his trumpet, one-third of the vegetation is going to be burned up. And that's what God created on day three in Genesis 1. When the second trumpet sounds, one-third of the oceans are turned to blood and one-third of the sea creatures will die. That's a corruption of day two and five in the creation week. With trumpet three, a third of the drinkable water is poisoned. And with trumpet four, one third of the heavenly lights, the sun and the moon and the stars are dimmed and darkness will prevail. It's a subversion of the creation that happened on day one and four. And while people are trying to survive in a world that is coming apart, trumpets five and six will sound. And grotesque creatures that we talked about, we looked at this chapter in particular, demon locusts with tails like scorpions and power to torment people and hideous 
horses with power to kill people. They're released upon the earth. It's a perversion of the animal kingdom and also an attack on man, the height and pinnacle of creation, what God created on day six. But there is one more series of judgments to come. And these judgments will be so severe that Jesus talking about them in his Olivet Discourse said, if God didn't cut these days short, nobody on earth would survive. We haven't studied those judgments yet. They are going to be poured out upon the earth in chapter 16. We're just in chapter 14. But ever since the trumpet judgments were described in chapters 8 and 9, the prophecy of Revelation has been winding up to deliver these final devastating judgments that will come right before Jesus returns to conquer any remaining existence and to establish his kingdom. However, however, even in the midst of these coming judgments upon the earth, even though the earth is reeling in the righteous wrath of God, God is still passionate about calling men and women to escape his wrath and to be saved. We've already seen this in several places in the book of Revelation. In Revelation 6, 9, John speaks of the souls who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. They were bearing witness during the time of judgment to the world of salvation through Jesus Christ. And in Revelation 7, the Lord seals 144,000 whom he calls his servants to hold forth the word of the truth of life through Jesus Christ in the darkest hour of human history. These servants minister in the earth, proclaiming to people that what is happening on earth is the judgment of God and they can be saved and, and come to know him and believe him. And in chapter 11, the Lord raises up two witnesses in particular and gives them special power. And they are to preach three and a half years to God's chosen people, the Jews in particular. God has a special passion in his heart for his own people still in Revelation, calling them to salvation. And when their time of witness is over, they are killed by the forces of Satan. In Revelation 13, others will be bearing witness to Christ during this time in the world. In chapter 13, the forces of Satan are allowed by God to attack those witnesses and kill them. And when we come to the chapter 14, the beginning of the chapter, which is where we left off last time, we find these 144,000 servants of the Lord, now in glory, most of them at least, standing with the Lamb, their witness finished, having been slain, most of them, for the testimony of the gospel. So what we find is a running theme through Revelation. Judgment is coming upon the earth. And people of the world had given themselves wholeheartedly to follow the will of Satan and his servants, the beast and the false prophet, as we saw in chapter 13. Yet in this hostile, dangerous environment, the Lord raises up faithful servants to bear witness to him in a world that does not deserve him calling them to salvation, warning them to repent, even though everyone wants to destroy these witnesses. Why does the Lord raise up these witnesses? Why doesn't he just let the world go to judgment? He has every right to do it. Why does he still call people to share the gospel even in the darkest hour? I think it's because what we read in John chapter three is still true in the book of Revelation. For God so loved the world 
that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. And this is a stunning idea. Revelation in chapter 19 climaxes with Jesus coming to judge and to set up his kingdom. But John 3 says this is not originally why Jesus came. He came to save the world, not to judge the world. And what Paul says in 1 Timothy 2 is still true in Revelation. God, our Savior, desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. And what Peter writes in 2 Peter 3, 9 is still true in Revelation. For those who were tempted to think that the Lord was not going to return and judge the earth and vindicate his people, Peter says, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise. It's going to happen. Some count slowness. Some say, where is he? He says, actually, you're seeing the Lord's patience. The Lord is patient toward you because he's not willing that any should perish, but that they should reach repentance. The Lord, the reason the Lord raises up faithful witnesses even during this time of judgment is because even in his wrath, he remembers his mercy. God is merciful to his creation. So what do we have here in Revelation chapter 14, verses 6 through 13? This is God's absolute final call to people to turn to him and be saved. This is it. This is literally God's final call. After verse 13, the final dreadful judgments are announced in chapter 15 and the seven angels prepare to pour out their wrath of judgment And in chapter 16, they pour out that judgment. And in chapter 17 and 18, there's a pause in the action while the implications of that judgment are discussed. And we see what the impact is. And then finally in chapter 19, the Lord gloriously returns. So what we are reading is God's last merciful warning to the whole world to turn to him before the final judgment, to get out of the house before it blows. And here is what I think we discover when we look carefully at these verses. God's merciful final invitation to turn to him and be saved is marked by four essential messages. And I want to tell you these messages should be part of our gospel witness today. We may shy away from sharing part of them, but every one of these messages is part of the good news that's being proclaimed. So what are these four essential messages? Well, I put them all up here for you uh, to look at this morning, although in true form, we're only going to get to the first one this morning because it's taking me a little bit of time to set this up and we'll do the next three uh, next Lord's Day. Some of you are like, yeah, right. Uh, But but we're just going to look at the first one this morning. But we are going to see four of these essential messages. First of all, we'll see there's there's a royal proclamation, which is in verses six through seven, which essentially is worship God. And then the second angel comes and he gives a critical affirmation. Judgment is coming. And the third angel's message is a fatal admonition. You will be condemned if you do not turn to God. And it is a forever condemnation. It's stunning to read that scripture. And finally, there is an underlying message really in all of these other messages that the author brings out in verses 12 and 13. And I call it a spiritual consolation for believers 
endure to the end. The message is pointed to the whole earth. But believers are encouraged by the first three as well. And what they take away is number four, the spiritual consolation. The end is coming and we can endure to the end. Here, he says, is a call for the endurance of the saints. So let's consider this first essential message, a royal proclamation, worship God. This is what the first angel cries unto all the world. He says in verse six, then I saw another angel flying directly overhead with an eternal gospel to proclaim to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation and tribe and language and people. And he said with a loud voice, fear God and give him glory because the hour of his judgment has come and worship him who made heaven and earth and the sea and the springs of water. Now, John calls this another angel because he's thinking of the angels, you remember, who uh, announced the trumpet judgment. So he's comparing the angel to those angels. Those angels were announcing the actual judgments. They would blow the trumpet and the, the, the judgments would come. This angel is flying high overhead so that those in the earth could hear his voice. And what is he saying? Well, John describes this proclamation by the angel as an eternal gospel. Now, some of you know the word angel actually means messenger. The Greek word is angelos. So when we say the word angel, we're actually speaking a Greek word put in English. The word gospel that you see there means a good message. In Greek, it's pronounced you angelion. You see the word angel there in the word gospel? It's in there. It's because an angel is a messenger and gospel is a good message. It's the same word in Greek. And actually the verb to proclaim that you see there is another form of the word a message also. It literally means to evangelize or to proclaim the good message or the good news. That's the Greek word you angelizo. And you see the word angel in there as well. He uses the word angel three different times here. And what we have here is an angel, euangelizing with the euangelion, a heavenly messenger evangelizing, preaching the good message of the gospel. And I believe that this is a universal call that goes out into the entire world. I think everybody gets to hear this message. Because notice that the angel addresses the good news to those who dwell on the earth. And then to emphasize what he says, John adds to every nation and tribe and language and people. This is missionary activity. This is the gospel going to the ends of the earth one final time before the Lord returns. But you might have noticed that the gospel presentation of this angel is not perhaps what you might have expected. You might have thought that the angel would cry out, turn from your sin. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. He died for you and he rose again. Believe that message and be saved. That's what we would proclaim if we were told fly through the air and you know, proclaim the gospel. That'd probably be more of our gospel. This is the gospel message that Paul and the other apostles proclaimed. But this is the message we have here. He says, Fear God and give him glory. This is the content of the gospel. The gospel means good news. What is the news? The news is fear God and give him glory because the hour of his judgment has come and worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. 
This is not the Roman's road. This isn't what we expected to read in, in a typical gospel tract. Why is there no mention of Christ and his work on the cross? Well, to begin with, think about the fact that the full message of the gospel is not repeated in the New Testament every time the author mentions the gospel. Paul sometimes refers to the gospel proclamation as the preaching of the cross. In Titus 2, he calls it the grace of God that brings salvation. In Romans 6, he refers to it simply as the gift of God. So sometimes the gospel is referred to in more comprehensive or broad terms. Second, gospel means good news. And not all news is the same. When when Jesus and his disciples preached the gospel of the kingdom in the gospels, the gospel of the kingdom was the good news that the king had come and he was going to bring the kingdom and establish it if his people would accept him as the king. Jesus and the disciples did not preach the death and resurrection of Christ in the gospel preaching that they preached in the gospels. In fact, when Jesus started talking about his death, they got all confused and nervous. And Peter even took Jesus aside and tried to rebuke him, remember? That's not the gospel they were preaching, but they were preaching the good news they were told to preach. It was part of the bigger picture. I think the key to this particular gospel is in the fact that he uses the term eternal gospel. What does that mean? What is an eternal gospel? Well, at the least, I think it means that this is the same gospel that has been preached from the very foundation of the world and will be proclaimed throughout all eternity, an eternal gospel. This is the big picture gospel message. The gospel message is what the death and resurrection of Christ makes possible to honor the creator as king over all the earth. This is a royal proclamation. Notice that the angel calls upon the people of the whole earth to fear God and give him glory and worship him. Three different ways he asks for this kind of worship. These are the These are the kinds of verbs you would use to speak of a subject coming before the throne of a great king. And there are two realities that the angel declares about this king. First of all, he's about to bring judgment upon the world to those who do not bow before him. And secondly, he is the creator of all the earth that he has already judged. I want you to notice that the angel says he made heaven earth, sea, and fresh water. That should remind you of the trumpet judgments, one, two, three, and four. Coming upon the heavens, the earth, the sea, the springs of water. He is saying in essence, do you see how the creator is completely in control of all he has made? He has set it up and he can tear it down. And he is about to do it again in an even bigger way. So fear him and glorify him and worship him. You see, this is an eternal gospel because to fear and to glorify and to worship God is the very reason that God created us to begin with. And from the Garden of Eden till today, to worship God has been the primary call that has gone out into all the world. In fact, we just read, just heard John read uh, John chapter Four, where Jesus says to the woman at the well, the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. 
God is not just seeking for those to follow him. He is seeking for those who will worship him, who will fear him, who will honor him and obey him and love him. In fact, if you will study the Old Testament on the theme of fearing God in this way, you will find that it is indeed the eternal message of the scripture that God has called us to fear him and to know him and to worship him. And I can demonstrate this simply by taking you to some key passages in the Old Testament where God's people are defined by the fact that they feared him or were instructed to fear him. Here's one example. Abraham on the mountain, having been sent there by God to sacrifice his son, certainly one of the most important and memorable moments in salvation history. When Abraham went to obey God with the knife in his hand, about to slay his son, the angel of the Lord stopped him. And remember what he said? He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him, for now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. Abraham had embraced the eternal gospel. He placed his faith in God and demonstrated his honor and obedience to God. And and in that event on the mountain, by providing a ram to take the place of the death of Isaac, you remember, God signaled a single event that would take place two millennia later. On some say the same mountain, the sacrifice of Christ, which is what enables us to fear God to this day. All throughout the Old Testament, the call to fear God is there, but people find they cannot do it. So God says, you're not holy, you're not righteous in your heart. I'm gonna have to make you righteous myself. And he did that through the sending of his son. But the point was so that we could fear God and honor him through what the son has done to change us. And throughout the Old Testament, those who placed their faith in God identified themselves as God-fearers. Over and over again in the law that God gave to the nation through Moses, God instructs his people to fear him. In another key passage in Israel's history, Deuteronomy 6, as the children of Israel were preparing to enter into the promised land, God instructed them this way. He said, now this is the commandment, the statutes and rules that the Lord your God commanded me to teach you that you may do them in the land to which you are going over to possess it, that you may fear the Lord your God, you and your son and your son's son by keeping all his statutes and his commandments, which I command you all the days of your life and that your days may be long. Skipping down to verse 13, he says, it is the Lord your God, you shall fear him, you shall serve, and by his name, him you shall serve, and by his name, you shall swear. You shall not go after other gods or the peoples who are around you, for the Lord your God in the midst is a jealous God, lest the anger of the Lord your God be kindled against you and you destroy you from the face of the earth. And then a few chapters later in Deuteronomy chapter 10, we find a summary of all that God is asking his people to do. He says, and now Israel, what does the Lord require of you? But what? To fear the Lord your God to walk in all his ways, to love him and to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and to keep the commandments and statutes of the Lord which I am commanding you today for your good. Behold, the Lord your God to the Lord your God belong heaven and the heaven of heavens and the earth and all that is in it, which is really striking to me because that's his point in, in Revelation when he talks about the fear of the Lord, that we should fear him because God owns everything. He created everything. He controls everything. He has a right to everything. 
And down in verse 20, you shall fear the Lord your God and you shall serve him and hold fast to him and by his name you shall swear. He is your praise. He is your God. God was raising up a nation that feared him so that this eternal gospel could be magnified in the earth through the nation of Israel. And in the book of Ecclesiastes, a book of wisdom literature in which the author, ostensibly Solomon, takes the reader on a journey to explore, remember, every aspect of human existence, looking for the meaning of it all. And he keeps coming back to one conclusion in Ecclesiastes, fear God, fear God, fear God. And at the end of the book, we have the climax in verse 13 where he says, the end of the matter All has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments for this is the whole duty of man and it is still the whole duty of humankind. This is the reason we have been created. This is our duty. This is our purpose for existence. This is the eternal gospel. You know, I'm also struck by the fact that when the apostle Paul in Romans 3 wants to demonstrate in detail that there is none righteous, not even one, After all he says in this passage to describe the human condition, his crowning statement is there is no fear of God before their eyes. That's the bottom line. They don't fear God. And that is the reason Paul goes on to explain Jesus Christ came into the world because people who were created to fear God, to worship him, to love him and honor him and obey him, don't do it. And left to themselves, no one would fear God. You and I would not fear God. Left to ourselves, left to our own sin, our own devices. There would be no fear of God before our eyes. But now Paul says later in this chapter, the righteousness of God has been manifested through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, but they're justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. We can talk about the judgment of God and it is terrible, terrible judgment, but God put forth the answer to that judgment himself so that we could escape. Jesus showed us what it meant to live a perfect life of honor and love and obedience to God the Father. He was God the Son and he showed us how to obey God the Father. And as a perfect human being, Jesus sacrificed himself on our behalf so that we can accept that sacrifice by faith, after which God the Father through the Holy Spirit gives us the ability to live out our lives for Jesus Christ so that now we can love and honor and obey and fear God. By the mercy and grace of God through Christ, believers in Christ are living out the message of the eternal gospel. We are fulfilling the purpose for which we have been created. And this angel goes throughout the earth. We're not told for how long. It might have been a several-day process. I mean, everybody in the earth has to hear. Of course, there are a lot of people who aren't left at this point in Revelation, but the survivors are being told this. Submit to the creator God. Glorify him. Worship him. Now, this morning as we wrap this up, I want to suggest as we look at the big message of this first angel, that it has significance for us this morning in two different directions, two different directions. First, this gospel message teaches us something about what we are supposed to be doing when we share the gospel with other people or when we preach it. The proclamation of the gospel is not merely an invitation 
to receive Jesus as Savior. My emphasis there is on the word invitation. It's not merely an invitation. Jesus died for your sins and rose again and invites you to receive his salvation if you want to, we might say. Here are all the things he will do for you, so you should really think about it. That's kind of how we say the gospel sometimes. I'm saying there's more to it than that. It's not just an invitation. Jesus is not simply one option out of many for people looking for spiritual fulfillment so that we have to advertise him. If you're looking for someone to give your life meaning, I might recommend the Lord Jesus Christ. I know that Christianity has been around for 2,000 years, but have you checked it out lately? We're offering a lot of new ways to experience Jesus. A lot of churches could say that, actually. A lot of new ways to experience Jesus, and you might like one of them. No, that's not how we preach the gospel. It's not how we share the gospel. That's not how the New Testament teaches us to do it. In fact, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 2.17, we don't peddle the word of God, he says. He uses the word to, to, to market it. We don't market it like we're marketing a product to consumers. We're not trying to convince people to choose our brand among the other competitors. We could be too polite about truth. If you want to believe, that's great. But if not, that's okay too. I mean, you know, we all have our lifestyle. We all have our beliefs. We've been impacted by the philosophy of toleration which doesn't mean that we are simply gracious with all people. I hope we are. But toleration means I have to accept somebody else's belief as if it's equal to my own. As if, who am I to say that my view is better than your view and that mine is right and yours is wrong? That's what the culture teaches us. That is not what the New Testament teaches us. The gospel is not a doctrine of toleration. The gospel is proclamation. Jesus is coming. A holy God must take out his wrath on sin and reveal that he is the conquering ruler over all the world. He is coming to judge those who have sinned and to reign. But because he is a loving, gracious God, he himself has provided a way through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ to escape his wrath and become his subjects and know his blessing and be welcomed to his throne. So turn and embrace him now before it's too late. That's gospel proclamation. This is the mood of the angelic gospel that we see in Revelation 14. This angel who's flying through the earth, he's not trying to garner support for Jesus as the coming king. If you're looking for somebody to rule over you, I just want you to know that Jesus is going to come pretty soon if you want. But if you're not, that's okay. It, it, it's your decision. That's all. God bless. You know, That's not what the angel is doing here. In this passage, he's urging them. He's warning them. Repent. Turn while you can. This is your literal last chance. Paul goes on to say in 2 Corinthians, we read this passage earlier, that he is actually an ambassador for Christ. In other words, he is like a royal dignitary with a message from a king. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, he says. God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. We implore you, be reconciled. If not, you have no hope. This is not because God thinks he has to convince people that he reigns over all. One day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father, to the honor of God the Father. 
This is a loving proclamation urging people to get on the right side through faith in the gospel. When we preach Christ or share him with people or get into conversations where we are defending our faith, we are not beholden to anyone. If they reject the gospel, we don't take it personally or feel dejected that we're not making a good enough case for our product. We are announcing and proclaiming the truth and we are right to urge them to embrace the truth. Now, I said there were two directions in which this gospel message of the angel has implications for us. The the first reminds us of the character of our own proclamation of the gospel. But the second is simply this. Do we ourselves, who have embraced the gospel of Jesus Christ, do we ourselves fear God and give glory and honor to him and worship him like we should? You are believers in Christ this morning because you have trusted Jesus Christ through the good news that he died for you and rose again. But we can treat that gospel as if it's merely our theological position and we know we're safe because of it. And we have the benefit of getting into heaven someday. And now that we've believed the gospel, we can relax and go about our lives and do the things we enjoy and choose certain earthly goals and, and so forth. And we know we're good. We've we got Christ and, and we believe in him. Is that the way we really live? Is that our vibe? Is that our mood of living Christianity? Or do we recognize what faith in Jesus Christ and salvation through his name actually means for us? That the gospel turns us from those who are condemned because we glorify and worship ourselves or someone else other than God into those who know what it means to fear God and to honor him and to worship him? Do we forget that we have been saved so that we can honor God and glorify him and worship him? Are the decisions that you will make this week and the plans that you are designing for yourself or how you think about using your time and energy this week, is it really all for the glory of God? Is that where your rudder is set? Is that where you are heading? Are you living out the eternal gospel? As believers in Christ, we must fear and glorify and worship the God who made us. It's the whole reason for our existence. And the only way that we will truly be satisfied And I urge you to reflect upon that truth and evaluate and reevaluate how you are living your life as a child of God and what you plan and how that is placing yourself in the middle of what God really wants for you in the name of the Son and then submitting to that will of the Father. How can we call others to eternal gospel through Jesus Christ if we are not living examples of that eternal gospel? gospel. So let's ask for God's grace that we might commit ourselves to proclaiming this gospel and living out the expression of this gospel to the glory of God. Father,